Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Welcome in everybody to the Longhorn Republic, your source for Texas Longhorn news, sports, and opinions with a bit of snark built in. We are a podcast of Burn Orange Nation, and you can find more great Texas Longhorn content over at burnorangenation.com. If you like what we do, please give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Helps get the show out there. Share this with your friends wherever you found it, whether it was Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, anywhere where you find fine podcast content. You can find Kyle and myself. Connect with us on social media at LonghornPod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, the Longhorn Republic, or shoot us an email, LonghornRepublicPod at gmail.com. My name is Gerald Goodridge. I'm your host this week, like I am every week, and I'm joined by a man who's also yelled in the Alamo Dome, Kyle Carpenter. Kyle, how are you? I, I didn't necessarily understand as I was at the game, the brouhaha, until... I got home and, and logged on to social media. I, I think I'm not a certified lip reader, but I believe it was an homage to uh, 80s hit Don't Give Me No Lines and Keep Your Hands to Yourself by the Georgia Satellites, which of course would be an homage to uh, UT beating Georgia uh, when they were officially back a couple of bulls ago. So yeah, I, I don't see anything wrong with it. Just, uh, you know, just uh, seems like he was singing a song there. I don't know. I'm kidding. Uh, it's stupid. We have dumb uh, off-season things very hyper speed immediately when the off-season was not but minutes old. Um, so this should be a fun, long uh, winter, spring, and summer. We hit peak off-season so freaking early. Like, the season had not even been over for like 12 hours officially. Uh, they hadn't done all the exit interviews full. It was just the dumbest thing in the world. The dumbest thing in the world. But uh, there's not a better pairing than Texas media and unnecessary controversy that goes national for some reason. We are here to talk about the aftermath of the Alamo Bowl, but probably from a more uh, on-the-field perspective. So we'll break that down, obviously. Uh, Texas right now is actively at halftime and actively uh, crapping the bed against Kansas State 58-40. to uh, We'll have an update for that. We'll also talk about the win over OU in Norman. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about in BOL. Uh, a lot of updates coming for you. Uh, Under Armour All-American game was today, uh, so we'll have some talk conversation about that. And obviously close the show out with some Godzilla Tron and some Bang the Drum. So Texas came out and struggled in the Alamo Bowl. Um, we didn't know what it was going to be. Washington was like a weird tiebreaker away from probably playing in a New Year's Six Bowl, but because the Pac-12 tiebreakers were what they were, Texas faced the number 12 team in the country who got 
basically the entire core of their offense back. Texas was missing Bijan Robinson and Roshan Johnson. And both of those things showed up in the score. Texas trailed 13 to three at halftime. Texas closed the game out, outscoring Washington in the second half, but didn't manage to fully get over it. Falling to the Huskies 27 to 20 in the Alamo Bowl, finishing the year eight and five, but a three-game improvement in the win column over last year, so hard to be too upset by that. Uh, the the two stories, Kyle, I think, of this game, at least in my opinion, are the offense really like getting it, not quite getting it going on the ground, but Quinn Ewers getting it going through the air, and then the defense looking like they're going to be a unit moving forward into the future. They're basically staying intact next year, save for a couple of key pieces, but they're already looking at replacing them through the portal. Uh, so we, I think we have to talk about the offense and Ewers looked bad early. Let's just say it. Like people were feeling mm. like it was another going to be another Quinn Ewers game, finished the game 31 to 47 for 369 and a touchdown probably should have had uh, at least one more touchdown on the board, yeah. uh, save for a pretty ugly drop, a couple of pretty ugly drops from Xavier worthy, but for his efforts, best performance by a freshman quarterback in a bowl game, in the third best performance overall behind Major Applewhite, the 01 Holiday Bowl and Colt McCoy in the 09 Fiesta Bowl. Of all the ups and downs of the game, like we're we're Texas lost and we're not going to equivocate on that, but when you when you're looking at positives to take take away from the game, Quinn Ewers coming out and slinging the rock like he did, uh, especially connecting with a guy like Casey Kane, uh, who needed to emerge, that's a that's a big upside coming out of a loss. Yeah, it's funny. If you if you go back and listen to our preview episode, we we said, you know, if Ewers can can get some of that quarterback magic against Washington. And I said, look, tamper your expectations. It was Applewhite's last game, not his first bowl game, you know. But we we said if Ewers can can just look like the type of quarterback we know he can be and the defense can make a few stops, then, you know, Texas can win this. We, we didn't even really consider the fact that only one of these two teams would have a run game and it would absolutely be Washington and not Texas. Now, again, we'll talk a little bit and dive into specifics about personnel decisions and and who got the carries and maybe why, right? Maybe there was, yeah, this is an exhibition game. Maybe, maybe there's a little bit of rewarding guys for playing their butts off on special teams in the case of Keelan Robinson. Um, but, you know, you, you saw Jonathan Brooks, who's going to likely get the ball a lot next year, um, shine in this one. And you saw Quinn Ewers, especially in the second half, shine. You saw a defense give up 13 points to one of the top 10 offenses in the country, um, the best passing offense in the country. Um, so, I mean, I think like a pretty big win, right? And that includes a blocked punt in the first half that your, you know, your offense went three and out and then got a blocked punt. Like there, there was a lot of things that, that could have um, stacked against the defense, but they got a takeaway, uh, really just kind of limited what Washington wanted to do through the air. That's, they bet heavy that they would, be able to at least chip into, and and I, I'd say they did more than that, right? Penix, who was better than every quarterback statistically in the country this year, um, yardage-wise, was the second-best quarterback statistically in this game uh, to Quinn Ewers. So I'd say the defense did their job there. However, because it seemed like they sold out to kind of stop the likely game plan for Washington, they didn't really have the regular answers. And again, one overshone sized hole um, for <laughs> downhill tackling when the, the a fast running back did get going. Um, you, you have a linebacker who's as fast as any in the country would have been nice to have him. So you, you, you look at, I mean, just again, if you want to see the positives, well, the, the biggest glaring hole in this, in this game was Texas lack of a running game. Their top two running backs from this season sat out and they unexpectedly, uh, unexpectedly, inexplicably um, gave up, 
probably triple, quadruple rushing yards that they anticipated. Um, and there was their, you know, one of their two best linebackers, um, certainly their fastest, uh, was sitting out of this game. So it's a pretty direct correlation to what we all talked about going in and when we had Gabe on um, from uh, the, the UW site to preview. Like that, that was, you know, everyone thought this would be close, but the difference basically would be all of Washington, every single player for their team opted in kind of as a get ready, opted in and opted to come back for next season, right? Gabe, you talked at length about that, but, uh, and Texas had three of their best players on their entire team and three leaders on both sides of the ball opt out. Um, again, no, absolutely no hate, no shade, no disappointment, nothing. It just is a fact they didn't play. And you saw that. You saw that that hurt. Um, you hoped that they could fill those gaps, and they will try, and they'll have off seasons to work on it. But you can't be too upset when a really good team that's f- going to finish a top 10 team this season, though they looked like the better team for a lot of the game, um, it was a one-score game that Texas could have won, and Texas dropped touchdowns that literally could have been the difference in this game. So, you know, you, you kind of look at it and say, we know what we have to fix. Yeah, I mean, you said it right there. Texas dropped a wide-open, game-changing touchdown, right? there was That was basically a 14-point swing because Texas would have scored there, and I think Washington scored on the ensuing drives. Like, that's a 14-point swing right there on that drop. And with all of that being said, Texas got the ball with a chance to go down and tie it with, like, 30 seconds left on the clock, right? Like, so that is something to be said about the offense. And defensively, it was the lowest performance for Washington this year and the second-lowest performance for Michael Penix this year, the only game that he finished with fewer yards was a game he didn't finish because they were beating the tar out of Colorado, right? So, like, that to me is a sign of promise. That to me, Jaron Thompson, a guy who needs to play big next year, played his biggest game of the year, mm-hmm. right? 11 tackles and an interception. Jalen Ford did his thing. Uh, Diamante Tucker Dorsey stepped in and, and really filled that role for DeMarvin and Overshone. That was a big question for me. Like, when he had to do that against Texas Tech, it was ugly. And so he was able to come in and do that uh, and really close his Texas chapter of his career out on a high note so like that to me there's a lot of promise again texas is gonna have to replace a find a, a, a guy at linebacker they've probably got one who's gonna be playing in san antonio the alamo Alamo dome actually uh this weekend in the uh, the uh all-american game on nbc the art is it still the army all-american game the artist formerly known as the army all-american game <laughs> i don't know what it's called but the, the, the in-state kids should be playing in that. It's fine. Uh, but he's going to be like, he's a guy who could probably step in and fill that. Uh, they could pick up some other commits through the portal. Like there's, there's an opportunity there. Uh, we still don't know the future of Jalen Ford uh, as far as the NFL goes or what his, uh, he hasn't made a decision yet. We haven't heard anything from him, but uh, again, if he's back in Texas can find another fill in at that linebacker spot. Like this defense is going to retain a ton of its talent. They've already grabbed one of the top corners in the portal to, to kind of fill in for a guy, um, Deshaun Jameson, who's going to be uh, exploring uh, the NFL options, right? So, like, there is uh, an opportunity for this defense to take another step forward or at least not take a step back. We came into the season saying that we didn't need the defense to be a top you know, a top 10 unit. We didn't need them to be Georgia, right? We didn't, and Georgia kind of did what it did in the playoffs, right? We didn't need them to be the best of the best. We just needed them not to suck. And Basically, after Texas Tech, they played winning football for the majority of the year. And so, like, building on that, adding talent through the portal like they're going to, they've got uh, 
difference makers coming in to visit recently. And we'll, we'll have Mike Roach on here in a couple weeks to talk a bit about that. But like, there is an opportunity for this defense to continue to be a strength and the offense is going to take a step forward. Now we have Texas is going to have to do a lot of work on the interior of that offensive line. I think DJ Campbell, I will, I, I will stand on this uh, table. Like if DJ Campbell is a December enrollee instead of a um, summer enrollee, it's probably a little different uh, in the interior of that offensive line. So getting him in the Texas strength and conditioning program for a full offseason, I think will do a lot for the interior of that offensive line. But that's going to be the big question mark going into next year because really Jonathan Brooks, the man himself, only got six touches, right? Keelan got eight of them, got the start as RB1, and it was not a great look. And obviously everybody's looking to Cedric Baxter, who we'll talk about him later on the show. But like Jonathan Brooks, when he got the ball – in his hands, did some special things. And so, again, if Texas can figure it out in the interior of this offensive line, I don't see why they can't take a step forward again next year and finally put themselves back in Arlington. Yeah, I mean, you saw it all season in the Big 12. The best offensive lines were, were replete with juniors, seniors, fifth-year seniors, sixth-year seniors, right? COVID has created uh, a, a lot of uh, old guys, uh, and I say old meaning like 23, uh, but who, who are, you know, across the... the op- Relatively old. Right, in, in perspective. Across the Big 12, you saw the exact same thing with with uh, Washington, right? I think even their junior who started was a three-year starter, right? They had uh, seniors, fifth-year seniors. I mean, it was an experienced unit. And you saw basically, for majority of this game, they... They repelled Texas's pressure, and sure, that means we want Texas defensive line to improve and get more pressure. Like that is a priority. Uh, but you also saw an experienced senior line that had played together for a long time at the end of a season protect their quarterback, open holes for their running back. You saw a Texas line that has been up and down, and honestly, I would say more up than down as the season progressed. But nonetheless, um, without Bijan Robinson to paper over some of those cracks, without Andre Carrick there to kind of be the extra blocking tight end. You saw Gunnar Helm do some good things, some not so good things. I think if you get Brooks more carries, he certainly does more. I think he needed to be in there for the third and shorts. You saw with the touchdown that he could push the pile, and he has that ability in his bag. I think he's a one-cut, straight-speed guy is, is, you know, wild to say because Keelan is one of the fastest players on the team. That first cut when he goes may be faster. Than, than Keelan, the way that just Brooks runs, right? If they were in a 40, I don't know who, I, I'd be curious to see the tape. Um, but there will be a lot to like and to learn about about Brooks's game. I would have liked to see him more, but it did feel like that pressure and defensive front generally for Washington uh, was the better of the two fronts in this game. They, they you know, dominated the interior, especially of Texas's line. And like Gerald said, that will improve just with time, right? Like to, to finish this where I started it basically as this unit is not a bunch of freshmen and sophomores, but you know, a bunch of sophomores and juniors and, and Lord willing uh, juniors and seniors, right? And, and we get more conditioning, more reps, more time together, more cohesion uh, with this group. I feel like it can only go up, right? And, and Brooks and Baxter and and Blue and and if, if uh, he's part of the group, we'll, TBD, um, and uh, whoever is in that running back room will benefit from that greatly, right? Like if, if we I don't know how many times we've said this over the past decade, but if Ewers, who, you know, two very good defensive ends feasted on him all day with pressure, he did a great job with his legs, admittedly, like this, as good as I've ever seen him running, scrambling, breaking tackles, keeping his eyes upfield. Uh, if Ewers had the time that Penix has, it's scary, how, you know, 
how good his stats could have been, or, or again, how mad we would be about the more drops that that would equate to. Um, and in the running game, probably would have gotten a few more touches. I think the coaches called according to what was there. In 18 attempts that they they ran the ball is tied for the second lowest number in University of Texas history. Um, Texas runs the ball. Even, you know, whatever offense we have, we're going to run the ball as part of our identity. Look at our, our running back history. So, you know, this is a bit of an outlier. And Sark will have a more balanced play call uh, in the future um, next year. Like, I'm not worried about that. This Washington's cornerbacks were susceptible. And you saw that because, again, we beat their their defensive backs time and time again. We just didn't always catch the balls when when it was thrown anything deep, right? You, Gerald mentioned could have had another touchdown, could have had another 50, 60 yards, whatever. Um, but you know, I, I again, I'm not upset with the game plan. I think they took they attacked where they were weak. They tried to stay away from where they were strong, go away from the teeth, which was was just running into that you know that that defensive front. So if you had to do it all over again, would you switch some things up? I think so. I think Brooks probably gets touches early. There's a third and one where you put Brooks in, and he probably converts that, and that probably leads to points instead of a turnover. There's a lot of little things that could have gone differently, but you know, at the end of the day, it's a game that a top ten team is going into their season knowing that Texas gave them everything they could handle, and Texas has to feel pretty good about that, knowing that. There were two Heisman candidates, two top 10 Heisman finalists. Washington had theirs. Texas did not have theirs in B. John Robinson. And so could have been a lot worse, honestly, if you just just looked at it that way, right? Against the top 10 team, they got their Heisman guy. We don't have ours. We don't even have the second guy. Could have been worse. It could have been a lot worse. And I think, again, Texas acquitted itself well. There were fans online saying it was an ugly loss and things like that. And, yeah, there were frustrating parts about it. But I think overall, when you take the entire context into it, uh, it's frustrating, yes. But it's not an ugly loss. I think Texas had opportunities to win this game in spite of all of the things it was missing. And so that's something to build on going into the offseason. That's something for Texas to really uh, embrace that they were a stone's throw. They were, they were a couple of key plays away from going nine and four a year after they went five and seven. And and if some of these breaks go the other way, this is a completely different team. We've been saying that for years, but uh, I can't help but be optimistic based upon what I've seen in the bowl game and what I saw this year. Now, this is the update I know you all have been waiting for. (laughs) Podstradamus final score. Kyle roaring back. Like so many teams did against the Longhorns in the last two years, 17 to 14 to take a win. He hit on both of his worthy, had 10 targets and Penix threw an interception. I was absolutely just playing out in left field. Uh, I had Brooks for 110 yards and two sacks for the Texas D, neither of which happened. Washington's offensive line was absolutely dominant. It was totally insane. So that puts a button on the football season. Texas finishes eight and five. Third place in the Big 12, an opportunity to improve on that moving forward. Gerald, one final thing. Just don't, we have a tendency to, to go long, not long. It could be one word, it could be five words. What's your feeling heading into the offseason after the whole season, not just the bowl game, but after the season, year three for Sark coming up? We know we're getting some recruits in, some still to come on the portal. What's your feeling going into the offseason? Uh, I think my feeling is like so many off seasons, cautious optimism. <laughs> I think um, again, if the things break the right way and the development trend continues, I think that's the like the development trend. If it continues on this upward trajectory, Texas will have some experienced guys on both sides of the ball, and I think the opportunity is there for them to do what they needed to do, uh, what they could have done this year and had opportunities to do. Again, they were a tiebreaker rule and a couple of weird games away from being in the Big Twelve championship. 
championship this year. Yep. So like they're they're they were a breath away this year, and I think they take that breath next year. Yeah, there's 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 no doubt that when you look backwards on the season, there's a little bit of frustration that creeps in, or a little bit of what could have been ism, uh, which is certainly a word. Uh, they were close, and I and I hate being close, but I do think to what you said, they took a step forward this year and I'm going to go hopeful is my general feeling. And again, I, I've been burned before, uh, but I, I am hopeful if this was one step, that has to be the floor. Eight and eight and eight wins, you know, is, is the floor. That's where you have to get to next year and the years to come. Now, can you take one more step? And I'm hopeful they can get to nine. They can get to 10. Um, you know, we'll, we'll break down games next season and go a little more in depth in what we think they can actually do. But this is the floor. So the hope is, can you take that next step? And, and I, I am hopeful. Maybe maybe I'm, I'm uh, sunshine pumping and drinking the Kool-Aid. Uh, but I leave this season as we close this chapter. Another season, Gerald, with you. Great time. Hopeful. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to cars.com. It's magical. So that's the part of the show where we whip around the rest of campus and we down the 40. Number six men's basketball currently at the time of recording trails Kansas. 65 to 53, they've closed that gap ever so slightly. Uh, they're out, they've outscored them 13 to 10 to start the second quarter or the second half, so we'll obviously hopefully have an update for that, but if not, uh, things aren't looking great for Texas in its second conference game. Uh, they did, however, go into Norman, and after a uh, another ugly first half there, bounced back, roared back, and won 70-69. to They trailed 35-31 to at halftime, but a 10-2 run early in the second half gave them a two-point lead, and they kind of cruised from there. Marcus Carr was probably the story of the afternoon for them. 13 points, 4 of 12 from the floor, 2 of 3 from behind the arc. A career-high 4 steals and sealed the game with his free throws. For his efforts in that game and the absolutely dominant performance against Rio Grande Valley, uh, was awarded Big 12 Player of the Week for the second time in the last three weeks. You have to give some credit to, to Carr. Just really incredible effort the past couple of weeks. That that 41-point game, the first Longhorn to hit 40 uh, since 1996, the 33-points in the first half. I mean, four assists to one turnover to go with your 41 points. It wasn't like he was inefficient in shooting. He was turning the ball over. He was pushing it. He was just hot, and he just, you know, hit threes when he took them, and he created for guys when it wasn't there, and he drove in and got some points that way. Um, it was it was a great performance. It was it was what we thought Marcus Carr would be, and right now he's playing like the best player on this team, and that's great, um, and that's where we'll need to be. Um, that OU game was really interesting, right? OU hits the, the three at the buzzer to get a, a hellacious backdoor cover. I know I had at least one friend who texted me uh, how bad the beat was, um, and I feel for any Longhorn fans who similarly uh, may have had an inclination and or a wager on that line, but uh, Texas won, and that's 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 big. That's what you need. You start the conference on the road. Road wins are hard to come by. Now, now home losses aren't good, because we're looking at the other game, um, but road wins are hard to come by, and we'll take them any time that we can get them. Um, Timmy Allen has been really good kind of at this past couple of weeks heading into conference. I like where he's at. Uh, Dissy was uh, great at moments against 
OU, their defense. Uh, there was an interesting kind of, I think Blanks during the game said that, you know, with Rodney Terry, the offense seems to be better than under Beard. And it's a small sample size, but Texas almost scored 100 points in back-to-back games. They had 100 in the 97. Um, and that would have been, I think, the first time in school history, I believe. So it, it, they're, they're doing something on the offensive side, but it does seem like by not playing as lock it down, aggressive, you know, beer defense, um, you're seeing other teams score a little bit as well. And and when you look at, again, we're, we're not really doing deep analysis because it's happening, but when you look at the Kansas State going on right now, Texas isn't playing bad, but Kansas State is shooting 64% from the field and 60% from three, 90% from free throw. They just can't miss. Um, you know, they have forced nine turnovers, but um, I mean, it, when a team is shooting like that, it's just, it's, it's, it's hard to beat them, right? It's hard to beat them when as a team, they're close to 65%. So that will be something to watch as we head into conference, you know, teams know that beer's not there. They're going to throw some things that, um, that maybe they're not used to, or maybe they're not looking forward to try to see how Terry reacts on the fly, how that defense reacts. And so there's some good coaches in the Big 12, and you know for sure where they're going to attack, and it looks like it's going to be uh, attacking, trying to get points up against this Texas defense that last year you wouldn't have even dreamed of. They were just so good um, in the beginning of the year, similar. So uh, we, we shall keep an eye on that. Yes, defense can change and force you into low percentage shots, but like there's very little you can do when a team is 10 of 17 from three-point range. Like They're they're just seeing the bucket as big as a, as a kiddie pool at that point. So like there's, there's just not a whole lot you can do about that. Now, you can try to force them into some lower percentage shots, but they're hitting their low percentage shots too. They're shooting 60, almost 65 yeah. from the floor at the time of recording. So like the defense obviously has taken a step back. The offense has taken a step forward, so it feels like it's kind of a pick-your-poison situation with Texas. Uh, and they definitely took a poison pill tonight. So for Texas, up next, uh, they will have, after the Kansas State game, they'll take on Oklahoma State in Stillwater on Saturday. The ladies are off tonight. They'll be taking on um, TCU tomorrow night as you're listening to, actually tonight as you're listening to this. Uh, But they open conference play with a absolutely dominating win over Kansas State, 87 to 41, their seventh consecutive win. Uh, they outscored Kansas State. The big quarter for them, there's usually one big quarter in these blowouts, and it was the 22 to 9 second quarter, gave them a 20 point halftime lead, and just, just cruised from there, slowly built the lead, crock potted them, and um, more than doubled their final output for the day. Yeah, I mean, 41 points is, is, is you want to talk about playing good defense and, and playing really well, seven straight wins. Uh, it, the offense has been great, and, and Harmon's been back. They've I think they're averaging five less turnovers. They're forcing five more turnovers. Uh, some coincidence when your best player comes back, they're, they're playing better, and Roy Harmon uh, very specifically is the reason and one of the many reasons for that. But 41 points to Kansas State is the fewest that Texas has allowed to a Big 12 opponent since 2017-2018. So, I mean, great way to start your conference opener, set the tone, say, yeah, we have scores. Yeah, we have shooters. We're going to we're gonna play uh, press and, and, and go score it on the other end. But we Vic Schaefer basketball starts with uh, defense. And, and again, when you have a point guard like Rory Harmon who can do everything, it's easy to, to have that identity. When she goes out and in this Kansas State, she had 15, almost a triple-double, 15 points, 13 assists, 8 rebounds. That earned her the co-Big 12 Player of the Week uh, honors, which over the two games she averaged 15, 11 and a half uh, assists and 7 rebounds. Just 
really she's doing everything and she's playing incredible defense. So when she leads the charge like that, and it looks like she's, she's a hundred percent healthy and playing like the player, you know, we expected to see after last year's tournament run, especially, and, and really all season last year, um, this is this looks a little bit more like the team that we thought. Even with the Aaliyah Moore injury, this looks more like that team. Um, and so, yeah, I, I feel good going into conference. It feels like they're playing good basketball at the right time. It's a long conference grind, but they're going in with some good momentum. Yeah, I mean, they're the team to beat in, in the conference, and they showed that by absolutely beating the crap out of Kansas State. We said it preseason or in the, in the non-conference schedule. When Rory Harmon was injured, completely different team with her on the floor. So she is back. She's up to her full prowess. And Texas is doing what it needs to do in spite of losing a key player to injury, right? Yeah, Kansas Kansas State is sitting right out, was was sitting right outside of the AP Top 25 uh, heading into this game. They're 11-2 and two on the year. They're not a bad team. Texas hopefully should be back in the Top 25 at some point. But again, we, we have said it before, we'll say it again. Like, Vic, Vic teams play for conference play, and then they play for March, right? Like, so the number beside the name doesn't really matter that when it comes to tournament time. They're going to beat you. They're going to grind you out. That's what the teams do. Uh, next up for them, TCU in Fort Worth on uh, Wednesday, the day you're listening to this, and then Saturday in Stillwater at Oklahoma State. All right, Gerald, let's take a look now at the world through some burnt orange lenses. And we start with a bit of a somber note, but a cel- celebratory one, I believe. Um, UT baseball has been blessed with four of the best coaches, but a run of four coaches that's unheralded and right in the middle in the heart of that of what Texas baseball is what its foundation was what the next level uh, it rose to what Augie kind of built off was um, Cliff Gustafson just an all-time great coach uh, in 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 baseball and college baseball um, a man who's been honored in every way that you could imagine passed away uh, made it to see another year into 2023 passed away on January 2nd at the age of 91 a life well lived um, a career well documented every like I said every accolade every you know just plot it the the interviews the the quotes about him he was deeply deeply beloved by fans by players by anyone who interacted with him um, and just set a standard that the Texas baseball still um, holds themselves to and and again there's the, there was the dish and the falk who came before him um, but hopefully soon there's you know the Gustafson Garrido they need to name something after those two legends it's as good a run of four coaches as the history of of sports maybe has ever seen college sports at least and certainly college baseball um but uh now all four of those uh, legends have have passed away with garrido of course already um passing away a few years ago and so uh cliff gustafson just absolute longhorn legend he 91 is a good run regardless of who you are but like he made a a undeniable impact on the university 22 conference championships two natties uh what when he retired was the winningest baseball coach in history he's still in the top 10 uh still holds the record for most college world series wins as a, as a coach uh all the hall of fames you could ask for like he is a and and like again the people that played for him still talk about or, or people that played for people he played like that played <laughs> for him talk about like the ripple effect that coach gustafson had on them and so you can't um can't say enough good things about him and it's obviously sad to see him go where our thoughts and prayers with his uh his friends and family but like if you're talking about leaving an impact in your field and kind of changing it for the better there's no better example than than coach gus well said yeah um 
a Longhorn legend, a man who's already in the Texas uh, Hall of Fame. He's in just about every Hall of Fame. I think the guy was eligible for, including the the Baseball Hall of Fame and and uh, coaches uh, Hall of Fame. He's you know Google a Hall of Fame that has something to do with 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 baseball or college sports, and I guarantee you he's there uh, and well appreciated for a great career, great life, well lived. Um, hook him, Coach Gus. Moving on, NFL has been interesting, right? As we get to the doldrums of the year, as injuries set in, I was looking uh, for, at Longhorn stats and I, there's like 15 guys on the IR right now. Maybe that's high, but at least maybe double digit guys on the IR, uh, Longhorns on the IR. So it's uh, the pickings are getting a, a tiny bit slim here as we get to the end of the year. But Gerald, I think there's an obvious Longhorn of the week. You, you tell me uh, yours and then I think we'll probably be uh, lined in on this one. Honorable mention Malcolm Brown for being the most efficient one. One carry, 23 yards and a score. <laughs> but like, but Sam Ellinger tossing his first uh, NFL touchdown has to be the winner, right? Yeah, you love to see it, man. A nine for 14, 60 yards, one touchdown. Had a 12-yard uh, run when he when he used his legs. It's efficient. Sam, I, I this... You could build a career off that, right? Colt McCoy has showed you can you can build a real long career off that. We'll see how high you can take it. But I think Sam is the one. The, the other, I think, uh, just is at the opposite end of his career, though he's still at Pro Bowl level. But Quandre Diggs still doing it. Had one tackle, one PBU, and, of course, one interception. The man is just uh, he's good at what he does. Um, so I guess we'll, we'll, we'll split it between them. But, well, you know, I'm secretly rooting. Um, Sam Sam is one and a half. Quandre is half. We'll, we'll put it that way. But uh, no no – Shots fired there. Just wanted to give a quick. We won't, we'll dive deeper when we kind of do draft preview stuff. But um, Kuiper's offseason big board. Uh, Bijan came in at number eight. He was seven. And when Bryce, uh, when Alabama quarterback Bryce Young announced officially, uh, he did jump in front. Uh, it's pretty much quarterbacks and big boys who are ahead of him. There is one skill player, Jackson Smith and Jigba. But uh, otherwise, Bijan the top. Skill player on B, on uh, Kuiper's board, the number one running back for sure. Um, the only running back anywhere near the top ten coming in at number eight. I mean, we'll we'll see. Well, obviously, uh, the draft. There's a lot of moving pieces. Obviously, Bijan's probably going to work out pretty well. He's going to interview better than most guys in there. So, like, we'll we'll see how that process shakes out. It's a whole process. The meat market will spin up. Uh, but he's he's got an opportunity to be a first round running back and and uh, break Texas's streak of lack of first rounders, uh, which will be nice to see. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think Roshan was also in the top ten running backs. So, uh, would love to see both of those both of those guys go very early. Um, and I think what you said about Bijan will also apply to Roshan. Two guys who will wow GMs with just their character, as much as obviously their uh, physical stats, their their you know career. So up to this point and how they work out, but uh, character for both of those guys. Um, uh, an interesting note that I just caught right before the show, uh, former offensive lineman Denzel Okafor signed with the USFL's Michigan Panthers. Hadn't heard his name, didn't know where he was. So hopefully, uh, you know, you turn, turn it into a career, son. We got a lot of longhorns in the NFL uh, at the offensive line position, which again seems uh, like an outlier based on the past 10 years of, of Texas play before this one. But uh, Okafor, um, you know, joining the, the likes of, of Cosme and, and uh, many, many others in the in the professional ranks, but at the USFL level. One player who 
decided to toy with our hearts after the Alamo Bowl. Um, went through the whole, you know, want to thank my coaches and God and my parents and what a great career. And I will be coming back for one more year with Devondre Sweat. Uh, I'm going to start calling him the Big Tease is his new nickname. Uh, but he officially is back uh, for next year, which again, when we talk about the Alamo Bowl and, and with Coburn being likely a high draft pick, there's, it's going to be Sweat's time to shine. And some other guys need to step up in that front uh, as well. But uh, he will be back. One player who will not be is Texas deep snapper Zach Edwards entering the transfer portal. I love that uh, deep snappers also get to enter the portal. They're players too. I mean, the the specialists, you and I are, are still, we need to get the new punter on uh, the podcast. But uh, I mean, when Texas offered and gave a scholarship to Lance St. Louis last year, I think the writing was on the wall uh, that there would be an opportunity for him to uh, for him to come in and take over the duties. And that's what happened. He was uh, honored in as part of the senior day festivity. So this kind of the writing was on the wall here for, for at least uh, a few weeks, if not a year now, based on last signing day. Gerald, uh, this is, this is what we're excited about. And and we're going to get depth on this uh, when Mike Roach comes on, but run us down some of the Longhorns in the Under Armour All-American game. We know there's two All-American games, as you referenced, one coming up this weekend uh, in San Antonio, but in the first of the All-American games, uh, maybe the the Limer Green of the two, I don't know who's the Limest these days. I know who woke up the cheesiest, but I don't know who's the Limest of these, but uh, a couple a couple guys to, uh, to talk about who Texas fans certainly would be interested in um obviously Cedric Baxter a player we're all excited about um when we just talked about the Alamo Bowl and Texas's inability to really run the ball we saw Cedric Baxter run the ball um and expect that he'll want to do the same next year but who else who, who did you like in this one yeah I mean Texas, uh, Texas had what six players playing in one target right obviously Cedric Baxter Jonte Cook uh was there Malik Muhammad was there Derek Williams was there Sadir Mitchell was there um Deuce Robinson is a guy that Texas is still pushing for but it's looking like it's a Georgia Texas thing and I'll never pick I never will pick Texas when it's Texas Georgia it just is what it is but um uh, I mean Baxter scored the first play, of the first touchdown of the game, running a, a similar read concept to what he's going to see in Texas. It was a it was a called inside zone. He read the three technique and bounced it out and went yard like that. We saw Jonathan Brooks do that uh, a little bit in the uh, in the Alamo Bowl. So. Uh, Sark and Kyle Flood are going to run a lot of zone blocking schemes, and so he's already talked his the the post touchdown interview on the sideline. Kids out of breath, obviously, he just cracked off a twenty yard run. Uh, but he was like, "Yeah, we, we ran inside zone, three tech stayed inside. I went outside. Like he he knows how to run the run the basics of the offense already. So I'm a big fan of it. Uh, and then hopefully uh, we'll get to see this happen more often. But Derek Williams, safety, uh, potential five star safety, uh, intercepted Jackson Arnold, who is the OU quarterback of this this. Uh, this uh, uh this signing class so big fan of that no i i love seeing that um william when we talked about it on signing day williams was a big get for texas getting a kid from louisiana is always tough like you're going to recruit um especially skill skill position players out of louisiana you're going to recruit them until the the ink is dry on the facts until they are you know playing uh, on on your campus um because there's multiple people Looking in the same spot, LSU, of course, being one of them. And he just was such a, a great player that, you know, teams kept recruiting him all the way to the end. So it was a big Texas get. Um, and you saw it, right? A position of need, and he is a playmaker, right? We just talked about Quandary Diggs interceptions at the NFL level. We know what a career Earl Campbell had, both on the 40 and after. Um, playmaking safeties, uh, playmaking defensive backs generally is 
uh, a Texas tradition, and it's one that is ripe for you know a next uh, great to be entered into it. And the kids, you know, coming in as a freshman, don't put too much expectation immediately. But uh, you showed what he could do, and again, what a, what a tradition! Just I don't know, once a year, I think it's fine. Just just make that a, a yearly tradition where he intercepts Jackson Arnold. Uh, twice a year is great for me. Yeah, that, that two, sounds good to me. Two to four times a year. All right, we'll close this section out with a little bit of coaching news. Uh, Dwayne Aquina, who, unless you're a, a young Longhorn fan, which again, you, you sweet summer child, um, back in the glory days, he was at UT from 01 to 14 left um, and then went to Stanford, where he's been for the past nine years as the defensive backs coach there. Um, just was not retained new head coach coming in at Stanford. He was not retained. I don't know if it means I haven't read anything that he's done, but he is 66 with a 42 year coaching career. Doesn't mean he can't go another 10, do whatever makes you happy, Dwayne. But the man who uh, originally coined the term DBU at Texas in the glory days, uh, no longer the defensive backs coach at Stanford. I mean, Coach Akeen has got a long, I mean, we talked about like Quandre Diggs in the previous NFL long, like that's a guy who was coached by, Coach Aquino, right? Like he's he is the man. He's the reason why Texas was able to put a ton of uh, defensive backs in the league. He's the reason why Texas has some Thorpe Awards, right? Like Coach Aquino is is a um, there's a reason why he stays at places decades, right? When most coaches are transient after two or three years, he like he's a loyal guy, and he also is really good at what he does. Absolutely. Another guy who seems to be good at what he does, and that's uh, being a quarterback whisperer and recruiting the heck out of him. Um, Tim Beck. Got one of the biggest recruiting jobs of the year, certainly the biggest one he'll feature. If you don't recall, Tim Beck was named the head coach. Uh, Coastal Carolina took a couple former UT staffers and Craig Nivar and uh, where I'm uh, with him as well. Uh, but quarterback Grayson McCall, who's kind of been the player who put Coastal Carolina on the map in the most recent uh, last couple seasons, was entering the portal. It kind of seemed like a, a good move that he would play better competition at a, at a bigger school, um, you know, step up a little bit for his last year before trying the NFL waters. Uh, but Beck was able to convince him uh, over the holidays that that's where he needs to be. And again, if you're coming in as a new coach, being able to get that, uh, I don't know that you'll get another flip, another recruit or a bigger uh, commitment than uh, him pulling his name out of the portal. That's a huge recruiting job. I think it's funny that the tight end entered the portal or showed up in the portal like the moment after Grayson McCall pulled his name back out. Maybe they got beef. I don't know. But uh, I mean, it's it's huge for Coastal. I think a team was going to luck into a very experienced, very solid quarterback. Uh, and so Tim Beck getting him to stay is probably the biggest recruiting win in Coastal history, I would say. For sure. Um, Gerald, we got two more segments here to, to take us in our, our first show of 2023. Besides lots of college football bowls and uh, fun, I guess, holiday time, what did you watch on your giant screen. Let's take it home a little Godzilla Tron. Yeah, I had, a, had, a, had some watching time. Uh, my wife and I finished season four of what we do in the shadows. When she decided when she wanted to start watching it, I stopped watching season four about halfway through. So I finally finished the, the most recent season. Very, very fun. Um, got to experience that with her for the first time. Uh, hilarious. Again, not like a not not a not a PG or even a PG-13 <laughs> watch. Uh, so just take that in mind. Uh, I started our, our next show is Kaleidoscope on Netflix. And if you haven't heard of it, uh, it's a like it's a heist. 
uh, show. It's in five or six parts. I don't remember, but you can watch all but one of the episodes in any order that you want and get a different experience. Netflix actually randomizes it for when you log in. So like you, if you may have a different viewing order than I do Mm. when I log into Netflix, but make sure you watch white last white is the finale. The last one in your list will always be the finale. Don't watch that one first. That will ruin the experience for you. But any of the other episodes you can watch in any order and experience the story differently than everybody else. So uh, my wife being who she is asked me to look up the optimal viewing order for them. So I did so. (laughs) Um, And you can simply just Google best viewing order for kaleidoscope and it'll come up. But uh, yeah, it was, it's, we were two episodes in really fun, really good. Uh, Giancarlo Esposito is the lead. So you're obviously going to get, it's a different view of him than you get from like Breaking Bad or, or, um, the Mandalorian less uh, stoicism and villainy, and he's kind of got a little more liveliness to him, which I actually appreciate. And then our last one, kind of a crossover, my last one, uh, Glass Onion on Netflix as well. Did a weird Netflix-heavy one this time, but um, the latest Ryan Johnson murder mystery, which... I thoroughly enjoyed it, it. This isn't either you love it or you hate it. And more people are loving it than hating it. But I get the people that hate it. Like I get most of the people that are hating it. I'll say it like that. Um, like it's, it's fun. Again, Daniel Craig is great as the kind of the Southern detective. Who's the smartest person in the room and knows it, but still likes to be silly is the best way I can describe it. Like, I don't know how else to describe it. Um, it's like a modernized Agatha Christie almost like, but it was super fun. Uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, it. It was, it was a good way to pass two hours. I think he, he's Daniel Craig's playing into the, the stereotype that other people think Southerners are dumb because they're a little bit slow and sweet, you know, uh, sweet tea kind of uh, syrupy voice and, and cadence, but actually are operating three times faster than everyone in the room. Uh, I, I loved it. Actually. I loved the first one. Like one of my favorite films of the past 20 years was going in and seeing knives out with no expectations. And so there were expectations for this, which makes it a different viewing experience. And I think, I think that's where the criticisms come. Cause if it's just for the film, I don't really get it. I thought it was great. Um, I watched both of them from home. So maybe there's a theater versus not theater component. I don't know. Um, but I, I liked it. I, I actually loved it. Um, I did like the first one a little better. Um, but I, I mean, I, I liked it a lot. I thought, you know, it's, it's a whodunit. So there's obviously a twist and I won't spoil anything, but I thought, you know, it wasn't like the most unobvious thing, but it, it was interesting in the way they told it. It was just good, especially, I think, the first two-thirds before the the twist I thought were, were perfect. I think Edward Norton is great. Um, I thought the whole cast, actually. I, I thought Batista in his role as the meathead Twitch streamer was one of the funniest things I've seen on, you know, media. I'll but, just put Batista's it that way. Batista's a low-key actor, capital A actor. I, I mean, like, he slayed me. Like, his jokes, like, again, he's, he's hamming it up and he's playing, like, low hanging fruit, the least common denominator, but the, his, his cells on them were freaking hilarious. Like I, I was, you know, uh, I, I'm blanking on his name, whatever, you know, his character's name was, uh, don't dance with pineapple. Like just the way he, he delivered that line. Like, it's like, I don't know. It's just funny. Like I, instead of saying, no, I don't, I don't need pineapple. Like it just, I don't know. It, everything he did was hilarious. If you've seen blade, if you've seen the new blade runner, like you weren't shocked that Batista is hilarious, like not <laughs> hilarious, but like can act right. If mm-hmm. you can do draw, if you can do drama, uh, you can definitely do comedy. And like he 
the the few scenes he was in in Blade Runner was incredible. Batista's Batista's like an actor, like a capital A actor. So not Batista, but certainly something that if you can do drama, you can do comedy. White Lotus um, came back for its second season, and I just finished it. Um, I might be two weeks, three weeks after the actual finale. So uh, if you've seen it, um, I think you agree with me that that it it it, it does kind of dark humor, black humor, um, gallows humor pretty well in both seasons. Um, also kind of a murder mystery show in both cases they give you kind of the uh, something has happened and then you have a season to figure out and they try to lead you and there's some red herrings and maybe this is it um, and again you you probably can figure out if you're a real astute watcher where it's going but there you know there will be a oh you know like it, for sure in it so uh, if you like Glass Onion you would probably like White Lotus I think it's just really well done again it's a little bit of humor there's a little bit of like it feels like the writer is smirking while he writes it, if that makes sense. Like Mike White is just kind of like, <laughs> you know, like it's it's not just laugh out loud funny all the time, though there are some of those moments, but it's it's a biting satire. It's a, uh, you know, a sometimes ham-fisted like look at privilege and class set on these really high-end resorts. But the first one in Hawaii during pandemic was really magical the way it was shot when it was. And this one went to Italy and I thought it just was really incredible. Um, you don't necessarily have to have watched the first season to watch the second one they're they're only very minor overlap um it's a true anthology minus one character i think or two characters but uh but yeah it it probably helps get you you know in the mood for what you're going to watch so if you haven't watched either i would suggest watch them both it's really great um i think it's short uh episode counts like each one is i think seven episodes like around 45 minutes so it's not the biggest commitment for even even two seasons so I'd, i'd very much recommend it um i really liked white lotus yeah, we, my wife and I, like, it hit at a weird time. We never got into it, but it's one of those, like, yeah, everybody says we need to watch that. So uh, we're probably going to end up watching it at some point. But that brings us to the part of the show where we honor one of the best traditions in all of college athletics, Big Bertha, and we bang the drum, brought to you by Joe Ruiz. So, Kyle, what are you banging the drum on this week? So I, I mentioned I was at the Alamo Bowl. I was at the game and it was, you know, 90% Texas fans. And then it was 8% Washington fans. And you may say, Kyle, your math, your, your journalism major is showing that only adds up to 98. Um, well, no, probably 2% of the, the population of the stadium were, were fighting Texas Aggies who, who came out and, and wore their gear and, and threw the horns down. Um, and I get it, right? Like they had no bowl game to go to. So this was their bowl game. And so they, you know, could go and cheer for a team, I guess maroon and purple are close enough in the same family of colors. Um, but certainly there was no bowl game for A&M to attend. So it makes sense that they were there. Um, but there was another purple team that played after Texas. And again, had a bowl game that AM didn't have because they didn't qualify for one. But TCU went and played in the college football, you know, playoff semifinal and had a, an incredible game, an historic win for their program, a huge upset uh, to beat Michigan, a really great game. TCU is now playing for a national championship. They will, in another great game, be playing Georgia, who beat Ohio State uh, at the last minute in, in a heart attack game as well. Um, what does that mean to tie this back to what I'm calling uh, ag- agnominy, uh, ig- ignominy? Uh, but for Aggies, I think, I, yeah, that's, that's the right portmanteau. Um, Texas A&M is now the only Power 5 program in the state of Texas that hasn't played for a national championship, played in a national title game, 
in the big three sports, football, basketball, or baseball, since World War II. Since the, the bands of brothers and uh, movies that have been made about the grandchildren of, of, of that war, we are in, in the 20s now, right? We are 80 years removed from that decade since 1940. Texas A&M, because TCU is playing for a national championship in football. Texas A&M is the only one. So anytime an Aggie says anything, just remind them. Of course we know Texas is better. Hey, Baylor has won recently. Uh, Chris Beard got Texas Tech to a, a national championship in basketball. TCU is there. It's the Aggies. The Aggies are the only team playing at the Power 5 level in the state of Texas who don't belong in this conversation. They're britches. Far too big. Are their britches too big or are the sabers too small? So I'm making the this week on perspective, right? I saw a really, really silly tweet uh, over the weekend about Willie Fritz turning a team around in one year. Uh, they were two and 12 or two and 10 last year. And they were, you know, whatever they won. They won a major bowl game against USC and all that. And, why can't why your team doesn't need five years to turn things around? Well, that was year seven for Willie Fritz. Side note, and obviously the comparison is going to be really easy. There was a another um, local writer that decided to drudge up uh, his very clearly planted um, perspective on the previous coaching search and who was and was not wanted to be the uh, head coach based upon uh, who's currently in the playoffs. And I'll leave you to figure that one out. But. Um, you have to have perspective on those things, right? Like, yes. Did Willie Fritz go from two wins to 10 wins, right? Yes. Like that's a thing that happened. It's year seven. They should have can't like, do, do you, they should have canned him three years ago. Though. That's part <laughs> of the thing, right? Like he was, he was six and six. He was under two was at 500 every year, but this year, right? So like, is it a flash in the pan? They were a very experienced team. And there's going to be conversations about Sonny Dykes and every time that a, a team hires a new coach, right? Are they going to be able to turn around year one like Sonny Dykes did? And yes, I am not going to take away anything that Coach Dykes did, right? He took a team that last year was exceedingly average under Gary Patterson, was largely the same team this year, added a few key pieces from the transfer portal and turned it completely around. But the difference in the thing that we have to keep in mind is that like 13 or 14 of their starters are fourth and fifth year guys, right? They're fourth year seniors. They're fifth year seniors. There are a couple of six year seniors in there. I'm sure. Right. With the COVID years. So like the best way to be good at any sport, especially a physical sport that requires physical maturity is to be old, right? When you talk about basketball, a lot of times the, the philosophy is get old and stay old. That's why the transfer portal is a great thing in college basketball. And so like the perspective of yes, TCU has been a miraculous turnaround, but you also have to take into account that they've got like 13 guys that can rent a car when most of the other teams, Big 12, have players that can't even buy a beer yet. It's like you have to take that into perspective when you're talking about expectations for a coach. And again, do not hear me taking any, anything away from TCU. Incredible year. I have I have secretly been a Max Duggan fan for a long time. I have really thought he uh, had a lot of untapped capability and ability, and I think it's incredible to finally see him playing in an offense offense that maximizes his strength. Um, he's got, 
like he's got heart that matches the red tones of his hair. And it's just like, and he's an incredible quarterback. And I think he's had an incredible year and I'm glad he's having this moment. But like, again, 13 upperclassmen perspective is everything. So as Texas continues to mature, as Texas continues to add key pieces, uh, both young and old coming in, um, the, the arrow is pointed in the right direction. So everybody just shut up and get out of your way, their own way. I like how you landed that one, Gerald. Um, perspective is needed. Uh, you never bet against Willie Fritz. I mean, funky Willie Fritz is, is um, you, you just look, it comes from the cradle of coaches at, at Pittsburgh state, the, the fighting gorillas. Like, you know, I, I would not, bet against Willie Fritz. The guy did it. I think he went at national junior college level with Blinn. He went to high school level. He's a good coach. Good for him. I was really happy. Beating USC is great. Um, I hope we get a chance to do it in the playoffs next year, right? That feels like USC uh, with Lincoln Riley could be back. We know that they don't like to play defense in the fourth quarters. Um, that's an MO of whoever, defensive coordinator, strength coach, head coach, whatever. I would love to play USC in, in, in a playoff game next year and get a chance to do it ourselves, but we'll see. Let's, uh, Let's end it on that note. Let's end it back where I started the uh, the end of the Alamo Bowl preview with a bit of hope. And that's all we got for you this week. Kyle, where could the good folks find you on the internet? Oh, you can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Kirby. You can also follow the Texas pregamer at Texas pregamer. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at GH Goodrich. Follow the show on Twitter at Longhorn Pod. Facebook and Instagram, the Longhorn Republic. Or shoot us an email, LonghornRepublicPod at gmail.com. So we'll be back next week with another recap. We'll obviously update you on what Texas currently trails by eight with four and a half left to go in the game. So we'll obviously have some of that. We'll have all sorts of fun stuff for you next week. But until then, hook them. Hook them. A&M didn't win a bowl game. <laughs>